What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to PDI, boys and girls. It's time for another public display of imagination adventure. So hop on board and shush the crowd because we're about to step inside the pages of another thrilling bestseller. And there's no telling what we might find. For the public display of imagination podcast is provided by Joe King, Jay Bone Fettinger, and Zachary Motes. You can find the complete playlist from Milltown Road Band on Spotify. Welcome to Public Display of Imagination, where we talk to authors about their deepest, darkest secrets, the pet they always wanted to have, the superhero they always wanted to be, and sometimes we even talk about their books. I'm your host. Mark Dwayne Combs, with any luck, no one will ever find out that you listen to this show. And if they do, you can always play that I Lost a Beck card. And now that we've got all that nonsense out of the way, let's find out who we're talking with today. Now people know when they see me coming that it's best to move aside. I ain't trying to harm nobody. He's the only international best-selling author to have won the Seamus, Nero, and Lefty Awards. Three of American crime fiction's most prestigious prizes. His novels have been translated into dozens of languages and have won critical acclaim across the globe, including stars from every major pre-publication review outlet. He's a graduate of Dartmouth and former journalist with the Washington Post and the Newark, New Jersey Star-Ledger. He lives in Virginia with his wife and two children, but he's closer than you know. Brad Parks joins us today. Brad, thanks for setting aside the time. Yeah, Mark, great to be on the show. I'm looking forward to this. I've kind of dug into the background of this book. We'll be talking about Closer Than You Know. It just recently released. I've looked at the premise. Brad, you're a father. I'm a father. My daughter has two children. The concept behind this book, the premise for the story is just terrifying. Where did this idea come from? So the premise for the listeners who don't know, uh, it, it basically the book begins with a, a young working mother named Melanie Barrick. Uh, she comes home from work one day to pick up her baby at childcare, only to learn the child has been taken away by social services and no one will tell her why. Uh, and yes, that is uh, certainly a terrifying concept. Uh, a buddy of mine, Steve Hamilton, who's a great writer, uh, once said to me, you have to write the book that scares you. And I think this is definitely a book that scared me both in the conception and in the writing. And you know, you know where it comes from, it's actually very grounded in truth and fact. Um, and the, the simple fact is here in America, a, a country founded to resist tyranny, a, a, a democratic free society – all this stuff, we give our government this incredible, incredible power, which is, you know, no matter where you live, there is an agency of government that has the authority to take your children away from you. And, you know, I think most of the time people who know the child welfare system know that that power is only exercised as a last resort and with great restraint. But the what if that fuels a thriller like this one is what if that power were abused? And that's what Melanie Barrick, the protagonist of Closer Than You Know, is facing. Growing up as, as a parent, and I, my child was born when I was in my mid-20s, so I was still growing up at the time. Two things really kept me on edge and, and really, I guess, in the back of my mind were scary. The thought that one day someone might try to take her away from me in a child napping type of a scenario. And that actually happened to us when she was about 18 months of age. And fortunate for us that it was a failed attempt. Uh, 
But the other thing was, as she got older, that maybe she would be in an automobile accident and that would change her life forever. Now I've got a third one on my list. And I'm just (laughs) wondering, because I never considered this. So when this idea was rolling around on your drawing board, where do you go for research? Where, Where do you dig into, okay, how do these puzzle pieces fit? What's possible? What's not possible? How do I make this as realistic as I can? Right. Well, I'm I'm sorry I gave you something else to worry about, Mark. Uh, you know, I've I, I've often come to realize, you know, I, I have children of my own, and uh, and yes, you, you realize that that parenting is about basically about worrying about yeah. things you can't control, right? That, that's exactly. Part of it. I can remember asking, you know, I'm 43 years old, my dad is 73. I can remember him asking a few years back, like, Dad, you know, when did you finally stop worrying about me? And he said, I'll let you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we're, uh, we're, we're all there as parents. You know, in terms of how I grounded closer than you know, and, you know, I, I think it's, it's important to me as a former journalist that my books do have that verisimilitude, that they are kind of grounded and, and this could really happen. Um, and so I, I really did spend um, a, a fair amount of time um, doing a couple things. One, just hanging around juvenile and domestic relations court. Uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in in research by osmosis that you just, you know, you see things and you feel things when you just allow yourself to be in a certain world. Uh, and then, of course, I also didn't just hang around. I, I talked to the people who were involved, the, the social workers, the lawyers, a judge. Um, and so that everything procedurally that happens in this novel is really quite accurate. Um, and one of the things I, I, if I can praise myself, that I, I really like about this novel is that, okay, social services is sort of set up as the bad guy in some ways because they're the one who take the baby away, they're the one who are keeping the baby from the mother, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to remember that social services mandate is not to protect the mother. It is to do what is in the best interest of the child. So I think every step along the way in this novel, a social worker reading along would go, yep, that's exactly what I would do as well. Yep, that's what the law requires of me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it was really kind of taking this terrifying scenario and and then very much grounding it in the reality of the social service system. Um, Barbara Peters, who is a, a bookseller I love, she owns the Poison Pen in Scottsdale, uh, Arizona, uh, interviewed me at her store and she said, "You've really weaponized social services," and uh, I think I think that's what I've done here. Yeah, one of the questions I always have for my daughter when I talk, of course, as I mentioned earlier, she now has two small children. First question out of my mouth is usually, are you worrying enough? You know, (laughs) you know, because you're right. You're, You're right. I'll let you know when I stop worrying about you. One of the things that I think we probably don't consider in this whole equation is the social worker themselves. Right. The situation they're put in, the decisions they have to make, the the actions they have to take at times. What did you discover about people who work in that field? I would think it would take a, a very special person to stay with that job yeah. and to and to really manage that on a day in day out basis. So I did bring some other experience into this book of uh, of spending some time with social workers and, and and really understanding their world, and that is I was a newspaper reporter in Newark, New Jersey which is a, a, a tough city um, with a lot of, uh, you know, pockets of poverty and, um, and, and some really trying conditions. Uh, you know, the, the case that was actually, you know, kind of put social services on my radar screen for the first time. And, and bear in mind, I'm a, I'm a kid from Connecticut, right? A, a nice namby-pamby white suburb where social services wasn't a factor. It, it wasn't really a presence. And then suddenly I find myself in Newark, New Jersey, where social services is a huge, huge presence in the lives of families. And it's making these impactful decisions about which families stay together, which families are pulled apart. And 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 certainly in, in places like Newark, social services can be seen as the villain, can be seen as the bad guy. But then I did certainly spend some time with, with those folks. And man, yeah, I'll, I'll, there, there are some bad ones, and unfortunately, the bad ones are the ones who make the news, Mark. But there are also a lot of angels, you know, but th- that are angels all but for the wings, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they are just really remarkable people who are who are putting up with being 
overworked and underpaid and you know the the options that they have of what to do with children are often very limited and they've got the law breathing down their neck uh they've they've got other agencies you know that they're trying to collaborate with um my wife and i at one point were um casa volunteers uh court appointed special advocates uh you know which are you know help uh these families who are in the social service uh, you know, rigmarole and, and, you know, advocate for themselves and whatnot. And I remember how much time, and my wife did it much more than I did, how much time that one family took, right? Because there was, you know, so many layers of dysfunction and so much going on when you talk about poverty and a lack of access to education and not great jobs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you think about some of these social workers, they have 80 cases, 90 cases, 150 cases. I mean, you know, it, it, it boggles the mind. So, you know, I definitely had a lot of uh, compassion kind of for the other side and, and, and knowing that, that social workers have, uh, you know, really, truly one of the toughest jobs in America. No question. Was there anything about this research that you kind of on, on the surface going in, you kind of had one idea and something in your research really confirmed what you were already thinking, or maybe something in your research really kind of stood up to you and, and said, hey, no, no, you're thinking about this incorrectly. Maybe this is an idea here that we need to give some more consideration to and look at different facets. Right. You know, I, I had a, a wonderful conversation with a judge. Uh, and, you know, you would think that the judge would be the dispassionate one in this whole process, right? You know, the, you know, kind of making the decision. Uh, Sandy Conyers is her name. She was, uh, she's a judge in uh, Virginia Juvenile and Domestic Relations Court. And you know, it really came away feeling like that this was personal for her, you know, that this was not a dispassionate process at all. And so that, that even though sometimes I think the parent involved might not be aware of how much everybody in the system cares, you know, but that there really is a great deal of caring and, and that even the judge who, you know, is, is, is propped up on high and hiding behind these robes is, is very much feeling these cases and, and is very much feeling the weight of trying to do the best thing for a child. Uh, and, and so that, you know, I, I think it was just kind of making sure everybody uh, involved stayed engaged with their humanity and, you know, in, in the end, and I don't want to give too much away, uh, but Melanie Barrick does find that that even some of these people who were, she thought, kind of arrayed against her, uh, turn out to be some pretty decent folks. You would think that over a period of time, regardless what your attachment is to the process, that the process itself would just steal a piece of your soul yeah, and, sure. and, and keep it captive. It's hard to imagine that not being a natural outcome of what would happen there. Oh I, yeah, and there and there's you know there there's plenty of uh, of documentation of this. There's a, there's a high burnout level in, in this <laughs> in that profession, um, and, and a lot of that has to do with we don't pay these people nearly a much enough money, Mark, not, not to deal with the things they deal with, um, and and I think they you know that that folks have to. Uh, you know, really go in with a with a special kind of heart and a special kind of head. But I think the ones that survive, um, you know, are, are the ones that that can, uh, I, I guess, savor the victories. Um, you know, that 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 remember the children that they do help and 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 are and are fortified by that. Um, and then I, I think there are just also some some special people in this world. So it's it's a rough thing because I, I think this book, closer than you know, does present. A lot of the downside of, of social services and of foster care and, and that sort of thing. And there are many downsides, um, you know, but there are also some uh, some wonderful people working in the system as well. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Brad, in, in prepping for this conversation, I came across a quote that's attributed to you. Hopefully I've got this correct. <laughs> but the quote is, every book needs a spider. Ah, okay. 
I hate spiders. I, I, I just do. And, and, and I'm curious, why does every book need to have a spider? Well, so Mark, it's funny. I hate spiders too. Right. And that that's a, an important thing to remember as, as we get into this anecdote. So this was a, a few years back and, and my kids were starting to get bigger and I had been sharing this room. It was kind of my office and the kids playroom and, and the kids stuff was starting to take over. And my, my wife said to me, well, honey, do you, do you think maybe, you know, you, you would move your office? Uh, we, we had this shed on our property. Uh, and she said, do you, you know, do you think maybe you could move your office out to the shed? And I was like, I am an award winning author. I will not work in a shed. And then I went out to the shed and I'm like, actually, actually, this place isn't bad. <laughs> you know, like, and so I, I put in a drop ceiling, I painted it, I put some carpet in. So I had my own little pimped out shed. It was great. Right. But this was after was, you stood your ground first, correct? Yeah, after oh, you dug yeah, in? For like three seconds, Mark. <clears throat> am I kidding? Right. Okay. So, but th so there I am. So my office for a long time was this shed, uh, which again, I, I made it very comfortable, but it's still very much a shed. So I'm, I'm typing along one day doing my thing and I suddenly look up in the corner and there in the corner of my office shed is this massive, massive spider. I mean, it was one of those like the big, thick, hairy ones that have like muscles, you know, that stand out on their arms. Right. And I, and I start, and, and yes, I'm, I'm very afraid of spiders and I start looking around for something to kill it with. Sorry. I know that's not very humane, but there we are. And all I can find are either, you know, books that I've written and I didn't want to use those or books my friends have written and I didn't want to use those. So I, I finally took some balled up newspaper and I kind of very shakily approached the spider and I go whack. And the spider just kind of looks at me and laughs <laughs> and then disappears behind the filing cabinet. Right. At that point, I have to go back to my desk and I'm wearing shorts and I'm typing and I'm not thinking about the spider. I promise I'm not thinking about the spider. The spider isn't even there. And then I felt something tickle my leg. And Mark, I screamed like a <laughs> tiny little child. And that of course, it wasn't the spider at all, but that that's why I say every book needs a spider. Every book needs to have that thing that you give uh, the reader a glimpse of, and then it runs away. And then even as you're doing the other things that authors need to do, like establish characters and scene and setting and plot and all this other stuff, they always have in the back of their head that that scary thing that they just saw a glimpse of that is going to come back. And you know, I think in in this case, in closer than you know, uh, the spider is pretty obvious. I mean, you know, uh, Melanie Barrick has had her child taken away from her and she doesn't and, and she eventually figures out that somebody is manipulating the system against her and she can't figure out who and, and that's the spider in this novel i find that a fascinating story and it really relates to me because of my fear of spiders and also the fact that i have done that before i have had the spider on the wall that i actually now have a uh half of a sweat sock that's that's filled with about a cup and a half of rice, which makes a great weapon when, you, know, <laughs> when you can't get to something, you know. But even if there's a little dust spot left on the wall, I want to see where this thing ended up because I know <laughs> it's got the, I, the, the sweat sock with the rice. I, I, you should patent that. That sounds like a great, uh, a great anti-spider device. You know, we need some swag for this show. So maybe I'll put that in the, uh, in the files <laughs> to see, but I just know they have great recuperative powers and I don't trust them. They're going to come back and they're going to come right after me. Brad, I've got to ask, I talk to a lot of different authors and, you know, I get unusual responses to this question. My perspective has changed on this, but I always ask when you write, who's in charge? Are you in charge or are the characters in charge? Being as I started this writing game as a journalist, I, I, there there was a time when I would have told you that uh, that of course I'm in charge. So what, what kind of hoot nanny is this? Like I, you know, I, you would you would go to some conference somewhere and they would you know prop up some esteemed man of letters and they would say, oh, esteemed man of letters or woman of letters, you know, how do you know what happens next in your book? And the person would always say, well, my my characters tell me what's going to happen next. And I can remember for a long time when. I heard that I'm like, yeah, is that true? Do your characters also tell you you're a nutbag? Because that's what you sound like. 
And then suddenly I was writing, I believe it was chapter three of my very first novel, uh, which is Faces of the Gone. It came out nine years ago. And I have this reporter character, Carter Ross. Uh, he is uh, with a group of uh, gang members in Newark. And he needs to get some information out of these gang members. And in order to prove to them that he is not a cop, which of course, you know, gang members are going to think any white guy in Newark is probably a cop. And Carter Ross, the reporter, is a white guy. So to prove he's not a cop, he has to smoke marijuana with him, right? Now, Carter is a pretty straight-laced guy. You know, he maybe smoked pot once in college, but he, he doesn't really have any kind of tolerance or anything like that. So I, I get through with the scene. He gets the information that he needs. And uh, I'm, I'm like, all right, Carter, here we go. This is a thriller. So um, we're, we're moving on to the next scene now. And Carter was like, no, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit baked right now. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to stay here. I'm like, no, Carter, you, you don't understand. This, is, this has to be a well-paced novel. We need to move things along briskly. Well, let's go to the next scene. And he's like, no, dude, I, I, actually, I just kind of got the munchies a little bit. Could you just go on without me? So I'm like, no, forget it, Carter. Come on up. So you know, I make him stand up, and suddenly he's, he's stumbling all over the room. The gang members are laughing at him. He, he bumps into this, this box right, that comes toppling down on top of him. And um, and suddenly he is surrounded by copies of the new Adam Sandler movie. And he realizes that these tough, rough and tumble gang members from Newark have actually not been selling drugs. They've been selling bootleg movies this whole time because you can actually make more money selling bootleg movies than you can selling drugs. Um, and so it was at that moment that I realized I am actually not fully in charge of this process, even though I think I am. And that in fact, the characters are much more in charge and that, you know, yes, I bring them into being and yes, I imagine them and yes, I can see them. But it is amazing to me how much they do take on a life of their own. And I've even come to realize uh, that, you know, if I'm writing a scene and it's not working for some reason, and I, and I think most writers have that, that thing in their gut that goes, oh, this, this scene, I just, ah, I don't like it. It's not flowing. It's not what's, it is almost inevitably be because I am making the characters do something they wouldn't naturally do. And that when I actually step back and try to be a little less in control and try to do a little more listening to the characters, in fact, they'll tell me how they would handle that situation. And then the scene flows easily. So as much as it pains me and as much as I think it makes me sound like a, a, a raving lunatic, I know who's in charge. And it really, truly is the characters. We're going to dig into the characters a little bit deeper on the other side of this break. Brad Parks is our guest. You don't want to go away. We'll be right back. This is Carter Wilson, the author of Mr. Tender's Girl, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. Someone once said, if you don't howl at the moon, you'll never hear the echo. Are you an independent author who works hard to self-publish and self-promote your work? Being in the right place at the right time can impact who discovers your work and pushes your overall exposure to the next level. Imagine your author bio and your volume of work in the spotlight of a dedicated promotional page at publicdisplayofimagination.com. Imagine seeing your work featured in our Twitter feed, on Facebook, and Instagram. Imagine having a 15-minute, professionally edited audio interview of you talking about your latest release, complete with promotional graphics. Public Display of Imagination is now booking with independent, self-published authors. Limited availability and some restrictions apply. Find out more at publicdisplayofimagination.com slash indie authors. That's publicdisplayofimagination.com slash I-N-D-I-E authors. You've worked hard. It's time to let the world hear you howl. This is Leslie Nagel, the author of the Oakwood Book Club Mysteries, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. I know what you're thinking. Think you got me figured out. We're back with our guest, Brad Parks. We've been talking about his latest novel, Closer Than You Know. 
In this segment, we're going to talk a little bit about the characters, but before we dig into that, Brad, I want to give you an opportunity to tell folks where they can find you online, social media-wise. What's If someone wanted to follow you a little bit more closely, follow your work, maybe reach out to you and comment about something that they've read that you've put out there, what's the best place to, to contact you to follow you? So I primarily haunt two forums. Uh, one is Twitter, where I can be, I'm at Brad underscore Parks. And the other is Facebook, where www.facebook.com slash Brad Parks Books, all one word, is where you'll find me. Uh, then you can also go to my website, www.bradparksbooks.com. And uh, you can hit the contact form there, and that, that will send an email directly to me. Uh, you could also sign up for my newsletter. And Mark, I have to warn you about my newsletter. Uh, it is written by my interns. Uh, my interns are very impertinent, and one of their favorite things to do is to make fun of the author. So if if you have a great deal of respect for me, you probably shouldn't sign up for uh, my newsletter because my interns sure do not show me any respect whatsoever. I'm really I'm looking into doing something about them, but they uh, uh, so far you know labor laws being what they are, I, I can't seem to get rid of them. Oh, now I've just uh, I've got to get into the backlogs of that. That now you've uh, you've sucked me right in on the newsletter. I wasn't <laughs> aware of it, but as soon as we're done here, I'm going to be aware of it. I can assure you. Well, we I, do have we do have some fun with the interns as well. You know, the interns and I we've had toga parties together. Um, we've done sexy photo shoots. Um, you know, there have been some highlights as well. But uh, but but they also I am their favorite punching bag. There's no question about it. Oh, I got to dig into that. I talk to a lot of different folks that have different approaches to their characters. Some will tell me that once they've come up with the name for the character, once they know the name, they know the personality. I've had other people right. tell me that. Once they really learn the personality, then they know the name. How does that work for you? So, uh, yeah, I'm horrible with names. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I, I will often change names uh, three times during the, the, the course of a manuscript because I'll realize suddenly that every character has, you know, a first name that starts with J. And how the heck are you going to keep them distinct? Um, no, for me, character really starts actually with voice. Um, when when I feel like I can hear what they sound like in my head, that that is really where it begins. And then a close second to that is being able to see them. So when I, when I close my eyes, I can just I can see the person, and um, and then I feel like I'm uh, well, <laughs> I would say I'm in control of them, but really they're in control of me at that point. Um, but I yeah I and, and it, I'm so fanatical about voice. I will sometimes read my stuff out loud and, and will actually do the voice of the character. Uh, and it's amazing how when you do that, you realize, oh, gosh, I've, I've just put words in this woman's mouth that she would never say. Right. And even though I'm not particularly good at voices, it's not like I'm, you know, some I'm not Robin Williams or anything like that. Um, you know, nevertheless, it's it's just really valuable to me to just have some kind of idea of how they talk. So you actually hear what your character sounds like as well as develop the mental picture of oh, their yeah, behavior yeah. and their actions. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's and, I, and I have conversations with them, too, um, that, you know, that can go in, in many different directions. Um, like, you know, now and then, Mark, I, I have this thing that I, I call the kill bell. Uh, which is, you know, and I write crime fiction, of course. So say you're at about word 40,000 and, you know, things are just feeling a little too comfortable. Someone has to die. I mean, it's just, I'm sorry, someone has to die. And so I will kind of gather all the characters in the room. I'll, I'll deliver the bad news. I'm, I'm sorry, one of you is, is, is going to be killed right now. Uh, and then, you know, I, I kind of let them, you know, talk it out as to, as to who it should be. Um, you know, the, the, the one person who's always exempt, of course, at least when I'm writing the series, is Carter Ross. So Carter will kind of be over in the corner watching all of this frantic activity going on. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, I definitely, I talk to my characters all the time. So we've reached that place in the program where someone has to leave the show and it's not going to be a pleasant experience, but it's going to be entertaining. Do we have any volunteers? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What about a couple of character names that you've come across either in a book that you've read or a TV series that you were watching and you heard that name and you went, wow, that just really resonates. I, I wish I had come up with that one. I could do so much with that name. Is there any character names that 
kind of caught you that really stand out they kind of you know resonate with you or you would just pin that one on the wall and go wow that 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 one deserves a star there for for that particular character see i don't know to me it's not it, I, I guess i'm just not a name guy i mean it's it's more that the the character fills the name mm-hmm. to me than, than than the name fills the character so i mean like who is Jack Reacher, right? right? What kind of name is Jack Reacher? Well, if you don't know anything about Jack Reacher, that he's a six foot five, 250 pound ex-military cop who can, you know, kick the ass of, of 13 locals every time he walks into a bar, the name Jack Reacher wouldn't sound like that great a name, but yet there he is, you know, one of the great characters in, in modern fiction. So I don't know, like I'm, I'm terrible with names. Like uh, there's a character in, in Closer Than You Know, my latest novel, uh, his name is Mr. Honeywell. Uh, I named him after my thermostat, for God's <laughs> sakes. Like I was just I was just like desperate for a name. I'm walking by the thermos. I'm like Honeywell, great name. There we go. So I, yeah, I'm not the guy to talk to about names. Yeah, that works. I mean, I'm sure there are Honeywells in the uh, yellow pages somewhere out there. <laughs> uh, that's great. I like that. I really do. Let's circle back to the big man on campus, Carter Ross. Introduce us to Carter. Where did he come from? How did he develop initially? And, you know, how does he drive the bus? Where, you know, how does he drive the series for you as far as ideas and, and the way things unfold? Well, so I know this is a podcast, so they, they don't have the uh, the benefit of visuals. But um, uh, Carter Ross is about six foot one, about 185 pounds, uh, brown hair, blue eyes, uh, wears kind of very boring, plain clothing. Uh, I am six foot one, about 185 pounds, brown hair, blue eyes, also sartorially very boring. Uh, Carter is an investigative newspaper reporter for a Newark newspaper. I used to be an investigative reporter for a Newark newspaper. So yes, Carter and I have absolutely nothing in common. There's a connection there I'm Uh, sensing. Yeah. Uh, Well, so I always say like, you know, people ask, you know, how much of a Romana Clef is Carter? And I I always say, one, um, he's he's much better looking than I am. uh, And two, he's a much better reporter than I am. And uh, and three, we're we're really not alike at all because he's right handed and I'm left handed. There you go. So, I mean, huge. Obviously, this this is not me at all in any way, shape or form. But, you know, how Carter evolved was was really um out of the the tradition of having been a newspaper reporter, it was drilled into my head from a very, very early age that I was not the story, right? The story was the story, and my job as a reporter was to tell the story. And so when I first began thinking about a series featuring an investigative newspaper reporter, I thought, okay, I, I, I want to honor that tradition, and I, I want him, this guy, my reporter, to be the most boring, milquetoast human being possible, and who is the most boring person I've ever met? Me, of course. So, like, I'm just going to base this character completely on me, and nobody will care about him at all. And then, you know, that way I'll just be able to, with every book, kind of dive into the mystery of what's going on. And and this, I thought, was a, was a great plan until I, I got to about book three. And, you know, and, and by this point, I'm, I'm starting to get a, a fair amount of reader feedback. And everybody is wanting to know more about this Carter Ross guy. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. He's not the story. He's not the interesting part. But in fact, readers wanted to know more. And so that's why, you know, in book three and book four and book five, you get more about Carter's backstory, more about his family, more about his life outside the newspaper. Uh, Because, yeah, people actually were interested in this guy, uh, which still to this day takes me very much by surprise, to be honest. Well, and that's what I kind of wanted to know over the course of he's been in how many books now? Six books, six, um, six The Fraud, books. Uh, which which came out in 2015, was the latest. Six books deep. How has he changed from book one to book six? I mean, surely more and more layers have been peeled back, and that can't all be you, can it? Well, you know, it is and it's not. Uh, I mean, yeah, he definitely has, has evolved a life of his own. But um, funny enough, he, he sort of has traced my arc a little bit. Um, you know, Carter, when he starts out, is this happy-go-lucky bachelor-type guy who mm-hmm. doesn't take the world too seriously. But by book six, he is uh, he's about to be a father. Um, he is, well, trying to convince the mother of his child to marry him without much success. Uh, but life is suddenly not so much a joke to him all the time. Life is more serious to him. And that, I mean, very much mirrors my, my own journey. I was, when I first started writing Carter Ross, heck, I was 30 years old. Uh, you know, I was, I, well, I was not a happy-go-lucky bachelor. I was married, but we'd been married for about six months. So at, at that point, you're just still playing pretend. We didn't have kids, anything like that. And, um, 
And so I, I think just as, as I've gone along in life and I've, I've seen more of the world, certainly as I've had children, um, you know, I think when, when you have kids, suddenly everything bad that happens in the world is something bad that could happen to your kids. And that just makes it a lot more real and a lot more scary and a lot more serious. And I, and I think that is very much mirrored in, in Carter's uh, journey and that he, he now uh, does take the world more seriously than he ever did before. Yeah, absolutely. As as you get older, and now it's not just about me. There's there's other people that I care about, and maybe that need to protect, that feeling yeah. of don't overprotect, let them experience life, but not too drastically. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. How about secondary characters? I know they're always important in every book. Is there a secondary character that for you was really easy to write? They just came out and said, yeah, I want to be a part of this. I'm ready to play. Let's tell my story. Let's get it on the front page. Yeah. So, you know, and it's it's funny that first of all, that there are no secondary characters. I I always say that, you know, every every character I bring into a book is the protagonist of their own novel. Uh, And that's always important to remember. And that, you know, I, I oftentimes will play the game, the thought experiment. All right. What if this was so-and-so's novel? What would they be doing right now? What would they, what would they want? What would they need? Um, and I think that's a, a way to really round out those characters and make sure you don't fall into the trap of having only two dimensional characters who only really exist to serve the protagonist in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, so I, I think there's always, there's probably a, a quote unquote secondary character that I just fall in love with every single book. Um, in in the case of my most recent one, Closer Than You Know, it was Mr. Honeywell, who was um, uh, Melanie Barrick, the protagonist. This is her lawyer. And Mr. Honeywell was a guy that when he first came on stage, it was like, well, okay, Melanie needs a lawyer. And I knew he was, you know, because Melanie had no money, he was going to be a court appointed lawyer. Uh, and in, in, in Virginia, where the book is set, you know, court appointed lawyers uh, that, that do defense work are, uh, they're getting paid 100, 120 bucks a case. Uh, they are, they are not necessarily the top of the legal heap. Uh, you know, a lot of them are kind of scraping by. And so I'm, I'm thinking about this character and, and I, and I look up when I'm writing, so, uh, uh, one day, and I, I do most of my writing, um, re- really all of my writing, Mark, in a Hardee's restaurant, which you being from the Southeast, I don't think I need to tell you what a Hardee's restaurant is. Oh, no, I've uh, been in there. But uh, so I'm, I'm in Hardee's one day typing along, and I'm like, all right, she needs a lawyer. And this guy walks in, this just sad sack looking guy, you know, bags under his eyes. He's got, you know, stains on his shirt. His belly kind of falls out over his waistband. I'm like, all right. And that just became Melanie's lawyer. Great. So I put him in the page. I don't think about him at all. And then it's a funny thing how certain characters just, they they keep demanding more and more and more. And suddenly this guy, who I really had no plans for whatsoever, became a really pivotal character in the book and just became this character that everybody who has read the book falls in love with Mr. Honeywell too. Um, and so I just, I, I love that process. And, and it happens, like I said, every single book, it, it happens at least once. Uh, and it's part of what makes this whole thing fun. How about someone who maybe made a cameo at some point in time, uh, kind of a drive-by, you introduced them, they, they may have some legs. They may be that spider character that surfaces somewhere down the road. Is there somebody lurking out there that maybe hasn't played their full role just yet? Well, who knows? You know, we'll find out. Uh, Certainly in the latest novel, uh, Amy Kay, the dogged prosecutor, I've gotten a a few notes from readers saying, oh, maybe Amy should be her own series. Um, Certainly in the in the Carter Ross series, a a character that just seemed to capture everybody's heart uh, was, uh, you know, there's in each book, 
Carter is working closely with a different intern mm -hmm. uh, because, of course, in, in American media today, everybody's budget is squeezed. And the dirty little secret is that half of your news is being written by a 22-year-old recent college graduate, right? And so oftentimes, you know, the, the, the more seasoned reporter like Carter will get teamed with an intern. And so there's a different intern in every book. And in, and in my second novel, Eyes of the Innocent, there's an intern named Sweet Thang. Or at least that's her nickname, right? And they, they call her Sweet Thing because she went to Vanderbilt and, you know, whatever. So uh, she, of course, turns out to have a lot more substance than ever, anybody realized. And it, she became a character that, that a lot of fo folks really ended up enjoying. And uh, I had a, a, a reader by the name of Gary uh, Evans. And Gary Evans found me at a library event outside Cleveland uh, and in the, the Cuyahoga County Library System. And I'm, I'm doing this library event. And suddenly in the back, he stands up with a poster that says, bring back Sweet Thang. Nice. So sure enough, uh, in the sixth Carter Ross novel, I brought back Sweet Thang uh, just for Gary. That's awesome. So yeah, That's a you great never story. know when, it, when, it, when, a, uh, when a character is going to come back. That's a great story. I love that. We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to go behind the scenes with Brad a little bit, ask a few questions that maybe weren't in the books, but some things that you might want to know. Stay tuned. This is James Heyman, the author of the McCabe Savage series of suspense thrillers, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. I see the summer sun in my mind when I'm in my darkest place. Someone once said, if you don't howl at the moon, you'll never hear the echo. Are you an independent author who works hard to self-publish and self-promote your work? Being in the right place at the right time can impact who discovers your work and pushes your overall exposure to the next level. Imagine your author bio and your volume of work in the spotlight of a dedicated promotional page at publicdisplayofimagination.com. Imagine seeing your work featured in our Twitter feed, on Facebook, and Instagram. Imagine having a 15-minute, professionally edited audio interview of you talking about your latest release, complete with promotional graphics. Public Display of Imagination is now booking with independent, self-published authors. Limited availability and some restrictions apply. Find out more at publicdisplayofimagination.com slash indieauthors. That's publicdisplayofimagination.com slash I-N-D-I-E authors. You've worked hard. It's time to let the world hear you howl. We're at the midway point of this adventure, and there's more great stuff on the way. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for letting the Public Display of Imagination podcast be a part of your day, wherever you are whatever you might be doing. We hope you'll subscribe to the show and consider giving us a rating and a review through whatever podcast listening platform you're using to listen to the show. Right now, you're listening to one of our first ever interviews we recorded back in 2018. We've remastered the audio and uploaded it to our server as a part of the Public Display of Imagination Season 1 collection. Other authors you'll hear from in Season 1 include Mike Heiser, Carter Wilson, M.J. LaBeouf, and Leslie Nagel. If you're an avid reader in search of your next favorite author, you've tuned into the right podcast. And if you're one of our many listeners who is working away at your own keyboard each day, fine-tuning your upcoming international bestseller, well... We've got you covered, too. I'm sure you're going to find something in today's conversation that will be an encouragement to you and stoke your writing motivational fire. Thanks again for giving us a listen. If you're one of our many listeners who use Amazon for your shopping from time to time, please let us be your doorway. That helps the show, and we certainly appreciate your kindness. Now, let's get back to this week's conversation. This is Mike Heiser, the author of The Facade, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. Well, all I have is my wallet and an unbreakable home, but I walk with my memories, so I'm never alone. 
All right, we're back with our guest, Brad Parks. We've been talking about his book closer than you know. But Brad, I know that when a book finally comes out and it's been released and it's hit the stands, you've already hit the ground running on some other projects. I want to ask you maybe what's on your drawing board, if you can kind of tease us just a little bit, give us a peek behind the curtain as to what you're uh, toiling away with at this point. Yeah. So, uh, yes, in fact, uh, my next book is, uh, in the final stages of editing actually. So it's, it's almost ready to roll. Uh, it is called the last act and it features an out of work actor who is hired by the FBI to help bring down a Mexican drug cartel. So the, the actor has to go to a federal prison, uh, impersonate an inmate and cozy up to a man who is there for uh, laundering money for the cartel because the man also is harboring some documents that could uh, could in- result in indictments against the entire cartel. Uh, and of course, as we all know, Mark, nothing bad happens when you go to prison. So no. there, there's certainly you know no- nothing horrible that's going to happen to this character. This we know that. sounds like it will go according to plan. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you could have one of the characters in your books or one of your books itself featured as a question on Jeopardy referenced in a popular TV series episode or somehow written into a top 40 song that plays repeatedly on the radio. What would you really want? What would really strike a a chord with you? So Mark, this is uh, gosh, you're really getting me into just embarrassing confession time. (laughs) I am a huge, huge Taylor Swift fan. Okay. And if and if Taylor Swift were to write a song about Carter Ross and also about his on again, off again lover, Tina Thompson. So I, I I like to play with conventions oftentimes and you know, if the cliche is that the 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 woman can never get the man to commit. Uh, in Tina and Carter's relationship, it's quite the opposite. Carter is dying for a committed relationship with her, and she won't commit. So I would love to have Taylor Swift write a song about Tina Thompson's fear of commitment. This has hit written all over it, and it's it's it's, it's, it's totally. I, you can almost imagine the bass line already, and yeah, they'll they'll play it on hits one about fourteen times an hour. And uh, you, do you have a line to any of Taylor's people? You know, maybe, maybe as, we can get as, this done. As luck would have it, she listens to this show every week. I'm I, <laughs> well, I can't right, confirm Taylor, that, but I'm Taylor, certain of it. Together. Maybe someone named Taylor, someone named Swift, but you know, it'll, it'll work <laughs> out. It'll work out. Hey, tell me a story about finding one of your books, either in a bookstore or uh, on a rack somewhere where maybe you weren't expecting to see it. But I know that first see it on the shelf, that there's always an experience in there. Tell me a bookstore story. So the craziest thing right now, and this maybe is not exactly what you're looking for, but it's it's sort of on my mind. Um, my My last book, Say Nothing. Uh, was my first standalone, and it was also my first book to really go international. Uh, you know, to be published, I, I think it's it's been translated into 13 languages. It's you know it's being sold around the globe, which which is you know exciting and surreal. Right now, Mark, at this very moment, I am on the bestseller list in Germany. Um, which is hysterical. So it's uh, uh, Der Spiegel is the uh, the keeper of the bestseller list over there. They're the, the German equivalent of the New York Times, uh, and and it's just wild to me because um, uh, you know you think of uh, of a book being bought and 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 enjoyed in another language in another country that you never really spent much time considering. Um, it's kind of crazy, and it's also it's wild that like the the book was not on the New York Times bestseller list. So it it didn't make a bestseller list in its native language, but did make it in German, which has uh, brought up the very scary possibility in my mind that maybe my German translator is just a better writer than I am. I don't know. I'm wondering about the culture there. What you know, when I think of other and and I when I read yeah. that your books have been translated into so many different languages, I immediately think of all the different cultures and how does you know, something in a particular genre translate differently from culture to culture. Very interesting that it's, you know, that you brought that up. That's one of the things that in my mind I try to envision and I really struggle with. How does a book translate into different cultures like that? And it's it's funny because, you know, what I really get to see are the covers. You mm-hmm. know, you get a different cover for each country and that's, and how much the cover sort of reflects 
the the country itself. So like my French cover is very classy and very <laughs> tasteful. My my wife loves my French cover, right? The Italian cover of of the uh, of Say Nothing, which was my previous book. Now Say Nothing is a book about a judge whose children are kidnapped by someone who is looking to control the outcome of a case he is hearing. So the deal becomes, we'll give you your kids back when you give us the verdict we want. So a federal judge is the protagonist. The Italian cover has a guy without his shirt on. Yeah, and I'm that like, makes sense. What, what, <laughs> did, do you know a lot of judges who go around topless? Like, did the, did the kidnappers take his shirt? Like, what's, what's going on here? So it's just, it's hysterical. Um, you know, the, the, the different kind of stuff that, that, that you learn about, uh, countries. Exactly what I was envisioning there, a judge without a shirt on. Uh, <laughs> really, really nicely built shoulder muscles too, which I know a lot of judges like that as well. That's important. That's important. Have, have to sell the concept. You already told us that you do a lot of, of writing in a particular fast food establishment. Yes. I was, I was going to ask you to describe your writing den. I, I've got to ask why there, what draws you there and, and how do you get it done in a place that seemingly would have a lot of activity around you? So Mark, you may be aware of this, but Hardee's has among other things, a, a $5 meal deal that can pack in 1,830 calories if that is not a productive writing environment, I don't know what is. There you go. Uh, but in all seriousness, you know, Hardee's just became, uh, I don't know, it just became a thing for me. And, you know, I started doing it. Uh, my kids were small and I was not going to be able to get a lot of writing done around the house. We were living in rural Virginia. So there weren't exactly a lot of, you know, shishi coffee shops or anything like that. So Hardee's was kind of the only thing open. So off I went to Hardee's where I, I discovered very quickly it had three things going for it. Um, one, I could not hear my children screaming because it was about five miles away. So that was good. Uh, two, uh, free refills on the Coke Zero. Absolutely. Uh, which was, is my caffeine delivery mechanism of choice. I figured and that three, was the big plus. Uh, yeah, that's the huge. free and refills. Three, yeah. and most importantly, no wireless internet at Hardee's. So you are completely cut off from the world. So all there is to do at Hardee's is write. Um, and I, I've become such a fanatic about not having the internet when I write. Uh, I still actually have a circa 2006 flip phone. I do not have a smartphone because I just, you know, when I'm writing, I want it to be about the writing, about the characters, about the place I'm trying to take the reader and not about, ooh, somebody just tweeted at me or mm -hmm. I think I'm going to check out that video on Facebook or, you know, the other million things. I, I think the, the Internet is perhaps the greatest distraction device ever created. Um, and, and, you know, and most folks on the Internet, I, I have a theory that um, there are basically two kinds of people on the Internet, people who naturally gravitate toward cat videos and people who naturally gravitate towards shark videos. And I am very much a shark video guy. So, you know, even Mark, when I start out and I'm just, I just say, I'm going to go online really quickly because I, I'm setting this book in a certain city and I need to know, does that street go north, south or east, west or, you know, whatever. 45 minutes later, guaranteed shark videos. Right. So that's, that's not a problem at Hardee's. No, no shark videos at Hardee's. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. No, that ends the rabbit trail. Let's go back to your writer's den that had the spider. I, I want to get back into that little outside alcove because it sounds like that once you got that dressed up a little bit, it really became home for a little bit. Well, so that actually, um, I, I really do all my writing at Hardee's. So that is that is really only where I I would I would do my other work. You know, I always say being an author is is kind of like being a small business owner. Um, and so, you know, I always kind of have a, an afternoon full of stuff to keep me busy on that. So I, that's what I did in the shed. I didn't do any writing in the shed. The writing, for the most part, happened at Hardee's. I have things around my desk that are good memories for me. People, mm. some people call them keepsakes. Some people call sure. them mementos. Take me into something in that stash, something in that uh, office of yours that you would absolutely fight to keep. <laughs> well, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm bragging on myself now, but I do have some writing awards. Okay. Uh, and those are, those are nice to look at. 
Uh, although, you know, it's, it's a funny thing about when you win writing awards, you can, you can place the bust or the plaque right next to your keyboard and they still don't do any typing for you. Right. So they're, they're really quite of limited use, but, um, you know, I, I've got this great, uh, map, uh, actually, and I, I was a geography major in college and, uh, it was, it was presented to me by a, a, a library friends group in Essex County, Virginia, which is one County North of where I live. And, um, it was, it was just a map of the area, uh, the Middle Peninsula of Virginia, and they gave it to me as a gift, and it was where Say Nothing, my previous book, had been set. Uh, and so it was just – it was a really special hand-drawn map that I, I just uh, enjoy quite a bit. I, I'm, I'm all about place when I write. So uh, to have a, a map of my place given to me by that wonderful group of readers, it's really special to me. I was going to take you into a hotly contested game of Trivial Pursuit and allow you to bring some friends on board to help you manage the categories. I think you just took care of one of them. Geography, it sounds like you've got that one down. Right. That's yeah, all I, you. I, I can do the geography. Okay, I'm um, going to give you— I, I can also—I'm a former sports writer, so I'm pretty good with the sports trivia questions, too. I'm going to give you three other categories. I'm going to ask you to give me someone that's a writer that uh, you've read, someone that you've enjoyed that you think, hey, this could be the guy to bring on board with this. Category number one is history. Ah, uh, history— you know, I'm going to bring Steve Barry with me. Uh, if you've ever read Steve Barry's novels, he um, I always say he leads the league in Google searches <laughs> because you're you're reading a Steve Barry novel and it's it's exhaustively researched historically and you're going and he's you know setting some scene with President Lincoln or something like this and you're going, "Wait a second, did this really happen?" And you're forced to Google it because you, you need to figure out what Steve made up. And, you know, because 90% of it is inevitably true, but there's, there's the 10% he made up. And so you always want to know which part did he make up. But, but yeah, I'm going to take Steve Barry with me on history. I think that's a great pick. I've read some of his stuff. I'm hoping to talk to him soon because I think he just released something new. Uh, how about the science category? Science and nature. Science and nature. Okay, so I've, I've got a friend named Kira Bellis. Uh, uh, actually, I'm sorry. She writes under Kira Peikoff, P-I-E-K-O-F-F. Uh, and she writes these great science thrillers. Uh, she's, she's very much on the cutting edge of the, of the biomedical stuff. Um, so I, I'm thinking she, she would get me through on the science for sure. All right. And you said that, uh, sports is kind of a niche category for you as well, but I've never known anyone who truly enjoyed sports that didn't have a circle of friends that also enjoyed sports with them. Who's your go-to for that? Who's your second? Uh, so, you know, mostly because I admire him a lot and it'd be fun to hang out with him. Um, Lee Child is actually a huge Yankees fan. So he's, he's a Brit, so you wouldn't think it. But no, he, he has become a massive fan of American baseball and of, of the Yankees in particular. So, yeah, I'm going to have Lee Child be my wingman for that. Of the sports, what's your favorite? What do, what do you really got to just set aside? It's this season. I've got to get into it. Boy, that's tough to say. You know, I it has become less and less morally defensible as the years have gone on. But I'm still a huge football fan. Uh, you know, I'm 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 glued to the couch on Sundays and and even some Saturdays. Uh, you know, depending on what's going on in college. But um, uh, I, I'm actually a, a guy. I can actually watch golf on TV. Believe it or not, which is which is often just a great setting for a nap. Don't get me wrong, but maybe that's why I enjoy it so much. I don't know. Do you play golf? I, oh, I do. Yeah. I mean, you know, the poorly, hook. but but yes. No, but that's the hook. That's the hook. Brad Parks, ladies and gentlemen, Brad Parks. The book we talked about today is titled Closer Than You Know. But he also writes a series featuring investigative reporter Carter Ross and has a number of other standalone bestsellers from which to choose. Links to his books as well as his social media pages are posted on the host page for this adventure at publicdisplayofimagination.com. Pick up a copy and start your journey. Brad, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me on the show. We'll have to do it again. Mark, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Thank you again for listening to this remastered Season 1 Public Display of Imagination adventure. We hope you enjoyed the conversation, and we'll take just a moment to give us a rating and a review. We'd also appreciate it if you'd tell a friend you know who loves to read about the public display of Imagination Podcast. You'll find the host page for this author on the archives page under the podcast tab at publicdisplayofimagination.com. 
You'll also find links to their social media pages, their books on Amazon, and a special segment that we've uploaded to the Public Display of Imagination YouTube channel. We hope you'll check that out as well. Thanks again for giving us a listen. Until next time, remember, the light at the end of someone's darkness may be you. For the public display of Imagination podcast is provided by Joe King, J Bone Fettinger, and Zachary Motes. You can find the complete playlist for the Milltown Road Band on Spotify. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.